0: Are you concerned with the dignity of everyday people? Skeptical or outright hostile to state power? Troubled by hierarchy? Compelled to purge corrupting influences? Attracted to disciplined bodily habits? Worried that society is ever more unethical? Committed to influencing minds and hearts? Or convinced that everything happens for a reason? If so, you may be a new Puritan, the subject of a class offered by Drs. Nancy Koppelman, and Trevor Speller from Evergreen State College in Olympia, Washington. At a recent presentation given at Plymouth Plantation, Dr. Koppelman discussed the class and her mission to draw comparisons between the 17th century Puritans and Separatists and contemporary Americans. Here's an excerpt from her presentation.
1: Thank you. Well, thank you everybody. Welcome. Hi. I don't have a PowerPoint, so this is an informal conversation. Yay, between human between living, breathing human beings. Um, first I want to thank all of you for coming. I know this isn't part of your usual series, and I want to thank um, Kristen and the other staff at Plymouth Plantation who invited me, and especially Richard Pickering in particular. Um, When I was teaching this class called The New Puritans, which is at the corner of that handout I gave you, The New Puritans: Studies of Anglo-American Social Conscience, um, Richard got wind of the fact that I was bringing a class here, and he just reached out to me completely unbidden and said, i read about your class online, I think it's fantastic. I'd like to spend the entire day with your class in New Plymouth. Um, and so, because of his warmth and um, his in, in, uh, inviting personality, that's really why I'm here. It's, it's people like him who, who make connections between people possible. Um, I'm very grateful for the chance to tell you about this program, The New Puritans, um, because I just finished teaching it, and I finished on a high because it was such a great class. Um, So in order to give you a context for the class, I want to first tell you just a little bit about Evergreen, the college where I teach. Um, I want to tell you a little bit about why I wanted to teach a program class inspired by the Puritans, outline the class for you a little bit, and then show you what it meant to the students. Um, And then we'll have plenty of time for conversation. So first, just a little bit about Evergreen. Evergreen. Uh, is a public liberal arts college on Puget Sound, so it's about as far west as you can get from here and still be in the continental United States. It was founded in 1971 uh, very much in the spirit of alternative education, which at the time, as many of you may know, was really on the rise in a a big way. Um, It was founded with unusual structures and pedagogical commitments, quite different from mainstream colleges. For example, even now, um, we're getting close to our 50th anniversary, in in a few years Um, there are no letter grades there are no GPAs there are no credit distribution requirements and there are no formal departments when the college was founded there was no faculty tenure either that has changed but all uh oh Um, but but all those other things have have remained the same instead of taking three or four separate classes from different departments students enroll in one full-time program. We call them coordinated studies programs, which means that uh, an interdisciplinary team of faculty from, say, literature, history, and philosophy will coordinate those fields so that they all bear on one central big question or theme, so that each field is relevant and speaks to what the other field is doing in the class. Um, Just a couple of examples of programs like that that I've taught. Um, I've taught a program many times called, What Are Children For?, with a question mark. Um, That program is about the history of childhood, but I've taught it with faculty in business, and in that um, program, students learned about the economics of the education system and of schools, and they actually um, had to found a school as their final project. Just imagine what it would take to found a school. Uh, The history uh, that they were learning from me about the history of childhood intersected with business and business planning around education. So they learned a lot about the history of education as well. Another program that I taught recently is called Earth Dynamics – Climate, People, and History. That was taught with a physicist and an evolutionary biologist and my piece was intellectual history, and that program was interested in the dynamics between human beings, climate change, and evolution. So that's what we were looking at there. Um, In the New Puritans, there was only two faculty, which is more common in a senior-level program, which is what this was. Um, We combined uh, um, history, literature, um, intellectual history. and some political economy as well, um, to to work on our study of the Puritans, and more broadly of reform, the reform mentality in the Anglo-American world. So because of this unusual structure, because it's the only class students take, so whatever we do isn't competing with other classes, we were able to plan and take all the students to the Boston area this past fall, just 10 days after the class started. So people didn't even know each other's names yet, and we were getting on a plane and essentially living together for 10 days to go to Puritan sites. So this program was inspired for me by my many years of affiliation with Evergreen, 33 years and counting, because I was a student there myself in the 1980s, and before that had grown up in the alternative education world in high school. Um, and over the years of being involved in alternative education, I learned to be a kind of a participant observer there. Um, participant observation is a skill drawn from the methods of anthropology, as, as many of you probably know. The idea is to be a participant, of course, in whatever you're doing. So doing the work, playing the role, being immersed in whatever you're involved in. Um, and so I was a participant as a student at Evergreen, and then as a secretary, I was a staff member there, and eventually as a professor now for 20 years. But an observer too, I became an observer too, and that means deliberately practicing a degree of detachment from my own interests, so trying to step aside a little bit as things are going on, not only to see what's happening, here's what's apparent on the surface, but to discern what's going on under the surface of things. That is what it means, what it signifies, how it connects to the past, how it connects the character of our life and times, the deep currents which are invisible on the surface. So Evergreen was born in the late 1960s when students were hungering for an education that wasn't dry, dead, and dusty, but alive, relevant, and future-oriented. Um, The founders of the college were making a new path forward, um, leaving behind many of the usual influences of higher ed with its hierarchical trappings and traditions, and especially the loyalty to the conservation of disciplines, which is really central to what higher education is all about. So Evergreen was idealistic from the start. We're going to leave behind the old ways, sound familiar? And we're going to uh, forge a new path. I hope you can see where I'm going with this. So over the years, I noticed something in this idealism as I'm being a participant observer. I noticed plenty of taste for activism. Let's get out there and do stuff. Let's get out there and change things. But less curiosity about history than I would have liked, less empathy for ethical dilemmas than I would have liked, and that I and I think both of those those things are central to a liberal education. So this is a disconnect I begin to see, a kind of conflict at my college, because I'm being a participant observer. So this presented me with a puzzle as a teacher and as a person whose fields in U.S. history have been centrally concerned with reform movements in the context of industrializing capitalism. So that means abolitionism, temperance, feminism, the labor movement, um, evangelical Christianity, public education, children's rights, all of these reform movements that, that come out of a kind of... We can change the world, idealism. We can shape the world to how we think it ought to be. So This program, the New Puritans, was one of my answers to this puzzle. It was one way I tried to figure out the puzzle. The idea was to explore how and whether current reform-minded youth can see themselves at all in the aspirations of the very first North American reformers, the immigrant progeny of the Reformation, if you will. So I wanted to – it's a genuine question for me, and this is also common at Evergreen. Faculty don't just go in with all the answers. We go in with questions, with a puzzle that we're trying to figure out, and we're inviting students into the puzzle with us. So if you take a look at the handout um, that you have, um, what you have here on the, on the first side, whereas there's a little cartoon um, where a guy is being burned at the stake, although you do make some valid points says the guy with the torch. Um, This is from our our program description. And in order to interest uh, millennials, if you will, in the Puritans, I really felt like we had to have a major come on, something to entice and attract them. So I'm just going to read the first paragraph and the first bracket up there. So this was advertised in our catalog. Are you concerned with the dignity of everyday people? Everybody says yes. Are you skeptical or outright hostile to state powers? Remember, these are college students. Yes. Are you troubled by hierarchy? Yes. Compelled to purge corrupting influences? Attracted to disciplined bodily habits? So, we have tons of vegans and vegetarians and the gluten-free and the yoga and everything, right? Are you worried that society is ever more unethical, committed to influence mind and hearts? You want to be the change that you want to see in the world. Worry, uh, um, sorry, convinced that everything happens for a reason. That's really important. Everything happens for a reason. If so, you may be a new Puritan. Let's find out. So that was the come on. And apparently it worked because we had enough students to run the program. Um, and then further down in the program description was this very important passage where the second bracket is. In the 1950s, the path-breaking historian Perry Miller wrote, Without understanding Puritanism and that at its source, there is no understanding of America. Students will study what Miller meant, learn about generations of new Puritans over three centuries of American history, and evaluate whether Miller was and is correct. Puritanism has changed, but its basic structures of feeling, to borrow a phrase from Raymond Williams, are still with us and will be the subject of our studies. So the idea ha- here was to actually bring Perry Miller back. I don't, you must know per- Perry Miller's work, some of you, many of you. Um, so Perry Miller kind of put the Puritans on the map as a serious uh, as a serious uh, topic of study um, after World War II uh, when he finished graduate school. Up until then, antiquarian historians were mostly, isn't that curious and aren't they strange, was kind of the attitude, but Miller was was really interested in their inner life. He was interested in their intellectual life in, in their dreams and their hopes and their suffering. And so he was responsible in many ways in the historiography of the, uh, of North America of a move from event driven history. you know here 's a timeline with events on it that happened to intellectually driven history, to the idea that the inner lives and minds of people are also drivers of history, not just wars and treaties and, and elections and things like that. So nowadays, unfortunately, the work of Miller himself is largely lost in the dust, even among historians. I think. I would bet that even in graduate school in U.S. history um, departments, maybe students might read one essay by Perry Miller. It's like you got to know who he is, but then he's just okay. We'll leave him behind now. But that's really a shame because his influence at the time was profound, and it still is. Because really all of social history and all of the social constructionist ideas of history that are all about the way material life and intellectual life produce our way of life also include um, ideas from Miller. So in the fall, we did what we could to tune into Miller's claim, so we read some Perry Miller, and especially that sense of history that it expresses, this idea that that there are ways of thinking that get constructed in the deep past and that are still alive in the present, but we don't know how to see them. So this idea of Miller's was produced at a time when young scholars thought that making general claims about the character of American society was, in fact, their job. And that way of doing history has also fallen out of favor in the era of deconstruction. Everything is very particular and individualized and and much historical interpretation. But people still generalize all the time. So in fact, everything is social constructed as a generalization. So there's a way in which I feel impatient with my own graduate uh, study in the 90s, which taught me about social constructionism, and um, we can't get away from generalizations. Anyway, back to the new Puritans. In the fall, we spent 10 days visiting Puritan sites, and in fact, we left, as I said, 10 days after the quarter uh, began. We went to um, Provincetown. I wanted to take them on a boat to Provincetown so they could actually feel what it was like to be on the water. I was sort of wanting to take the long way. Hopefully they'd get just a little bit seasick, you know, just seasick enough to just get a a sense of what it might have been like to be on a ship for weeks and weeks. Um, We came here for a long, beautiful day. We went to Salem for about a 16-hour day. um, And we went to revolutionary sites all over Boston. Uh, We also went to the Boston Congregational Library, which was a a truly fantastic visit where students were able to hold 17th-century diaries in their hands. Um, The idea behind bringing them here, going to all that trouble and expense, and actually it only cost $900 a student, uh, plus they had to buy their plane fare themselves, but all of the things we did here, including housing, $900 for 10 days. Um, We read texts which helped us to hear the voices and understand the structures of feeling of the New England Puritans and of their spiritual and ethical heirs, of which we are some. So, this wasn't study abroad, of course. We didn't literally go to a foreign country. In fact, we're still in the United States. They got their bank cards, same money, all that sort of thing. But the idea, the challenge for me, was to get them in a foreign country in their minds. It's a really different place. Um, And the life and times of the New England Puritans did take us far away to a world completely unknown to our students. Um, I don't know if you've read um, L.P. Hartley's uh, uh, novel, The Go-Between which was written in 1953, Um, the first sentence of the novel, and it became the title of a book, the past is a foreign country, they do things differently there. So we tried to go to this foreign country, the Puritan past, and to appreciate the differences in how they did things there. And also see in Miller's words, if doing so might, in fact, help us understand. American culture better. So they do things differently there, but is there an echo of what they did in what we do, the way they thought and the way we think? Um, it was a powerful, visceral experience for the students. Tattoos all over, pierces, you know. and are, Yeah, right, impress me. You know, that sort of There's some attitude. I'll just be frank. I can, I can tell the truth, right? Um, for example, we were on the water on a boat to Provincetown, feeling a little seasick, breathing the air they breathed, reading sermons on the boat aloud, as they did. We visited sites where signal events took place, standing where people are buried, who they were reading about, turning them into real people instead of caricatures we grew up with. At the British Congregational Library, they met scholars who are passionately involved in the lives of these people from hundreds of years ago. and Just to get a sense of that connection, living in human beings today, was uh, really an amazing gift that the people who we worked with here gave us. So again, the aim was to feed and water curiosity and even empathy for people you don't understand, whose lives are opaque to you. It's easy to just sweep aside these people with words like colonial and settler. Well, those are—they're just the bad white people who came over. Well, that's just way too simple for understanding. As I was just discussing with—sorry—with Hillary, um, these were the uh, these were the religious refugees of their time. Some of them—they weren't nearly as impoverished as today's religious refugees, but nonetheless. Um, The idea here is for students to practice on the past, practice with the people who you have a kind of safe historical distance from. And maybe then we can do a little better in the present. Maybe you'll learn uh, curiosity and empathy and understanding over here for these dead people. And then maybe, just maybe, you might think it's important to bring that empathy and understanding to people who are alive right now. This is especially important for the Puritan in each of us, that part of us where our moral convictions are, where we know just for sure what's right, and we want others to follow suit. It's very hard to actually make that challenge come alive. Right now, as I'm sure you all know, college campuses are hotbeds of Puritan-inflected emotionalism, I think. I'm just going to say it. If you do a Google search with the keywords, college liberal intolerance, you get over 400,000 hits. What is going on? So I tried to choose texts with my incredible teaching colleague, Trevor Speller. His name is up there as well. If you're interested in the things that I'm talking about, by the way, you're welcome to contact either one of us. It was the thrill of our lives teaching this class. Anyway, we tried to choose texts that try to help us understand what's going on. One of our last texts helped us knit the past and the present, and I'm just going to give a little digest of this one, uh, one of our final texts. So um, if you look um, underneath the description of the program, you'll see a list of all the texts that we read. Um, I may have left out one or two last-minute editions, but um, in the second column, the third text listed is Tom Hayden's uh, Port Huron Statement, which some of you may know, Uh, but I'm just going to tell you a little bit about it. It was written in 1962, and it captures a moment when young people in college were trying to figure out how to square their idealism and their ethical commitments with a national ethos that did not stand behind their social and political values. So, this is like the very beginning of the 1960s. This was a print, printed as a pamphlet, uh, there were thousands of copies printed. Um, it is now um, uh, published by publishing houses because uh, it's an important text in the beginning of the of the um, of the uh, radical movements of the 1960s. Um, it's a statement of a kind of idealism of that moment, and like many of the authors we read on the list, so if you just look at the list and you look at uh, at John Bunyan and Frederick Douglass and Milton, uh, all the way to Thoreau and Hawthorne to um, Harriet Beecher Stowe and Bradstreet, all of these uh, writers that we read. this is a piece of writing that doesn't just try to say something, it's trying to do something in the world. It's trying to act in the world, be a voice that changes the way people actually think so that they will act differently. So it's a piece of writing that's trying to have a material influence on the world. Um, all of these writers, try to bring attention to what they think is important and to shape what human attention is turning to and what human attention is like. The Port Huron statement in particular influenced some of the activism that followed, some of the really important activism, and particularly the free speech movement. The current debates about Accusations of liberal intolerance are mostly about speech. A lot of them have to do with, well, what should people be talking about in college, what counts as offensive speech and what doesn't, and all that. So I'm just going to talk about that a little bit, about what this has to do with engagement with ideas. Now, one thing, for example, that my students were really amazed to learn was that the Puritans were incredibly intelligent, uh, obsessive writers obsessively interested in the details of everyday life. Everything means something and everything matters. That's exactly what they're like. So um, just that little thing alone was really important to them. That's kind of deep engagement with everything that's going on. Um, So if you know Anne Hutchinson's story, I hope you'll have that in mind while I tell you about the way the free speech movement then um, sort of started panning out after the Port Huron statement was, was written and distributed. So two years after the Port Huron Statement in 64 at UC Berkeley, after years of tense political activity, not not violence per se, but tense political activity on the margins of college campuses, came to a head at Berkeley when a former graduate student named Jack Weinberg was tabling on campus for the Congress of Racial Equality. At that time, university policy didn't permit political lobbying on its grounds. So the idea of you know, political activists being on a college campus, well, no, we don't do that, because what we're doing here is dealing with objective knowledge, and we're producing knowledge, and so we need to have that detachment from, uh, from interests, in other words. That was kind of the character of higher education. Um, so the idea here is that studying the world and changing it are two different things. When we're in college, we're studying, we're not changing, right? So Weinberg was quietly tabling for the Congress of Racial Equality on campus. The police came and said he was breaking the law. He was arrested, and that prompted three months of campus tensions, resulting in vigorous protests and hundreds of arrests. So people planting their bodies where they weren't supposed to be and getting carried out. Finally, in January of 1965, months later, the acting chancellor oversaw a dramatic change in policy at Berkeley. permitting diverse political perspectives and points of view to be represented on campus. And, but civilly, sitting quietly at a table, that's fine. So essentially, opening the door to breaking down that barrier between studying the world and changing it, okay? Although the free speech movement was associated with the left, students of all political persuasions benefited from its achievements, as did the culture of higher education in general. You could actually talk about stuff. You could talk about the real world. You know, well, what does this thing I'm learning have to do with what's happening in my world? Political differences that were part of civil society could be aired in college and be part of a college education. And the idea here is to a continual challenge of the certainties in knowledge, which has been a major piece of the culture of higher education in recent years. So we ask students, as we're learning about this, to hear echoes. Do you hear echoes of Anne Hutchinson? Not the exact same thing, but in principle, the idea that, well, I'm dissenting from what the rules say, and I'm willing to take my lumps for it. You know, I'm just going to plant my body here and do this. Just watch me. Okay. So note, too, in this story that I've just told, the attraction of certainties and how they can mitigate against engagement. So I'm just going to say a few final words, and um, and then we can have a conversation. Um, what I was hoping students would come out of this class with is a skepticism about evaluating people from the past and events from the past as just good and bad. Well, it's good that that happened. It's bad that that happened. You know, with some exceptions, of course. There are some things that I think we would say are just plain old bad. It's hard to see any good coming from them. But when we're talking about um, material, social, religious pressures that that create in people a kind of conflict and contradiction, where they feel, you know, we don't want to hurt anybody, but we need to make a change to our lives so that we can be true to ourselves. We can have integrity. Even if their actions end up having destructive, Um, consequences that they could not have anticipated, to try to understand what is going on. This is what it means to understand the fabric of history. Um, It's not easy. So it's good to be a new Puritan. Some of the virtues you may experience are courage, a willingness to experiment, an honoring of individual experiences, a tolerance for differences. These are some good things about being a new Puritan. But there are some bad things about being a new Puritan, too. Tolerance can have its limits. Well, I'll, I'll put up with this, but I'm not going to put up with that just because I disagree with you. Um, a limited appetite for complexity. This is what I saw um, going on in higher ed over the years. A limited appetite for ambiguity and imperfection in, in others. Uh, low curiosity about people you don't understand. A stingy empathy for suffering, which you may judge as not really that important. So that kind of understanding of difference um, has to be renewed with every generation. Um, Even with our technological developments, which allow us to travel the globe in an instant online, for example, or automatically translate language with a push of a button, and sign the same petitions as strangers across the world, thousands of miles away, we're still challenged to keep lines of communication open in our own backyards, which we still do have. Still, actually living and breathing in spaces with other human beings. Um, my students uh, did research projects where they tried to connect past and present in this way. Um, I'm just going to give you a few examples of things that they wrote about to try to have an understanding of the past and bring it to the present. Um, one student uh, has a bunch of friends who are uh, neo pagans, you know, uh, 21st century witches, Wicca people. So, he wanted to understand, well, is there really a connection between these friends of mine and 17th century uh, allegations of witches and witchcraft? And he found out, well, actually, no. There really isn't. It was it was uh, invented, and he wrote this amazing paper that showed that. But at the same time, he also could see that the ideas of the 17th century were invented as well. So, it actually gave him, I think, a different perspective about his friends. Um, another student. Um, who hopefully will do an internship here in the summer, um, did a paper on William Bradford's sodomy cases, and tried to understand why Bradford was pretty lenient in punishing those crimes. And he learned quite a bit more than he expected to about, um, about the, uh, the need to actually include uh, as many transgressors as possible in the body politic for, for, for practical reasons. Um, another student wrote an incredibly fine paper about women poet and, poets and prose writers, um, trying to understand how uh, writing was an outlet for women from uh, hun- you know, hundreds of years ago, where you couldn't have a material outf- outlet in your behavior. So what did writing enable women to do? Another student wrote about the idea of nature in racial thinking over the centuries? How does the idea of nature play a part, both in the minds of of, uh, slave owners as well as abolitionists? And where do you trace those threads back? How are they both using the concept of nature in order to justify their ideas? And finally, another student wrote a fantastic paper about the theological idea of the brokenhearted, drawn from the Bible as uh, a modern issue of economic justice. And she came up with this wonderful metric called the brokenhearted class. So, trying to put together this theological idea of the downtrodden, unlucky, deserving poor with... Uh, modern class tensions and relations. Very promising, interesting paper. So for all of these students, they got to write – do research and write papers where they got to actually work with these ideas about topics that they chose. So we didn't choose these topics for them. They all got to choose them. Um, And I think they also came to see that what they were trying to do in some ways, um, the the Puritans were trying to do similar things as what they are trying to do. and studying them helped them to understand more their own appetites for social justice. So they became more participant observers in their own life and times. Um, so the final thing I want to leave you with is this idea, which I mentioned a minute ago, that this historical sense, this ethical sense, empathy, needs to be renewed with every single generation. It's not like the laws of physics, for example. So the laws of physics are embedded in the knowledge in this building, where we're sitting right now, right? So the people who built this building didn't have to discover gravity, right, in order to design this building. There were a whole bunch of discoveries made in the field of physics that get applied to architecture and building, which are embedded in this building. So this building is full of knowledge. And behind what's apparent, behind what you can see, is all the knowledge right that makes us trust when we come in here this building isn't just going to fall on our heads right so there's all of this trust that we are placing in this building and in this knowledge some of which is hundreds and hundreds of years old but an ethical sense and a sense of history is not like the law of gravity it's not something that well previous generations figured that out and so we can just sort of walk through life as if this is an understanding that we all share no these are ways of understanding that need to be renewed in every generation, and I think a great way to renew that is with historical understanding. Um, coming to this Living History Museum w- was a major turning point for my students. I, just, I can't even tell you what it was like to just watch their faces as we went through this place in October. And I've left you here with a quote at the bottom, which has been really important to my own thinking about history. So I'm just going to read it, you can read along. Um, And this is actually not about history, but it applies to history and empathy as well. Whatever the one generation may learn, and this is from Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish uh, philosopher from Fear and Trembling, written in 1843. Whatever the one generation may learn from the other, the genuinely humane no generation learns from the foregoing. In this respect, every generation begins primitively has no different task from that of every previous generation, nor does it get further, except insofar as the preceding generation shirked its task and deluded itself. Thus, no generation has learned from another to love. No generation begins at any other point than at the beginning. No generation has a shorter task assigned to it than had the preceding generation." a beautiful thought about love needing to be renewed with every generation, and if you've raised children, you know what that means, you know, to to try to help your children, nurture them toward their better self, right? I think that that is not the only part of our better self. Our better self is also the empathetic part, the historically informed part as well. It is slow work. It can't just be passed on like the laws of physics. And places like this museum, I think, are absolutely essential to making it possible. Um, So this museum was very important to my ability to bring uh, pilgrim history and Puritan history alive to the 30 students who came with us here. So thank you very much. And I'll be happy to discuss it with you, as long as you like. Thank you.
0: Want to learn more? Download all of our full-length Voices from the Past podcast episodes, as well as podcast soundbites from iTunes, or stream it live on SoundCloud. For more podcast news, or to catch new episodes first, join the conversation on our social media channels, or visit us online at Plymouth.org. The Plymouth Plantation Podcast is produced by the Museum Experience Group and Plymouth Plantation Incorporated. Our theme music was composed by John Previdini. Thanks for listening.